0: And what panpsychism is, is the proposal that maybe the constituents of the universe actually have a kind of lower level qualitative awareness built in. Okay. So like someone like Goff would say, maybe it's the case that like the most fundamental particles, in addition to having like mass and spin and superposition, whatever, they also have qualitative awareness in a very truncated form that once it gets organized into hierarchies, becomes more explicit, say, a human experience, right? But it's the attempt to solve the hard problem of consciousness by building consciousness into the most basic particles.
1: Welcome back. I'm here with Dr. James Madden.
0: Thanks for having yeah. yeah. me
1: again.
0: Yeah. Welcome. to it
1: is. Right. Thank you. All right. So, today we're going to talk a little bit about pretty simple stuff like the nature of reality. <laughs> but before we get kind of into all that, I just want to go through some of what your background is so that we can ground the audience to what we're about to talk about. So, you have a doctorate in philosophy. Mm-hmm. Your focus area, at least, very broadly, what you studied was analytic philosophy. Mm -hmm. What exactly is analytic philosophy?
0: Yeah. So one of the problems with analytic philosophy is it's so hard to define what it is, right? It's sort of this tradition that disavows being a tradition, right? And I should know about my background. I have a strange dilettante sort of background in philosophy. So as an undergraduate, you know, I was very interested in European philosophy primarily. And then I, I went off To Kent State to get my master's degree. But then, just the way it worked out, I ended up writing my master's thesis on Ludwig Wittgenstein and Wilfred Sellers, who were two very prominent analytic philosophers. Mm -hmm. And then I went to Purdue to get my PhD, which was a very pluralistic program, but there was a lot of analytic philosophy done there. And I ended up writing on Leibniz, who's a 17th century German metaphysician. And that would have been kind of in the analytic school of thought, right? Or methodology. Okay. And so uncharitably, I think some people would say analytic philosophy is simply the philosophy that like sort of gives naturalism or scientism like a, a default, right? Okay. But that's that's unfair cuz there's plenty of analytic philosophers who are not naturalists or, you know, sort of dogmatic scientific metaphysicians or something like that. Okay. I think probably your best way of defining analytic philosophy would be to define it almost historically, right? Is mm-hmm. Following on the work done by mid period Bertrand Russell, early Ludwig Wittgenstein. Okay. And so basically, you're going to look at it as having a certain relationship to modern logic. Right. And modern logic, the best off the cuff way of putting this is modern logic is basically the, the logical systems. That do not take the surface grammar of sentences as logically normative. It assumes that they can be analyzed into deeper logical relations. Okay. And the idea that for philosophy is that once we take our utterances that give us philosophical trouble and we analyze them into the logical forms of modern logic, that this is going to make a lot of the puzzles go away. Right. And so what you see in early analytic philosophy through people like Bertrand Russell and the early Wittgenstein and then into people like Carnap and Quine, okay, is just this attempt to take the tools of modern logic and analyze our ordinary language statements about philosophical issues with the hope that it's going to dissolve those issues once we have a clearer linguistic way of putting it, right? But I'll say this, is that since the 1970s, 80s, what's happened is that idea, that notion, like it's, where does the term analytic come for in, in analytic philosophy? It's the idea that it's what we should do rather than metaphysics and epistemology of the traditional sort, where we're speculating about the world outside of language, is we should instead analyze everything into this deeper logical syntax, right? And in doing that, that will basically let us just close the doors on philosophy right it'll be shown to be irrelevant right since like the 1980s what's called them like philosophy has just become kind of a wild wild west because you can find plenty of metaphysical speculation you can find plenty of epistemological speculation right and so now i think the way i would put it the way it's practiced in the university today is it's mainly just the philosophy among anglo-american english-speaking people right where there's a, there's a definite emphasis on logical rigor that might be some would say missing from some european philosophy but i don't think there's a defining method for it anymore
1: now is there a mathematics around logic that fits into this yeah. analytic philosophy well one of the, the
0: going debates early on right and because like think of it Bertrand Russell one of the founders of what we call analytic philosophy was a mathematician right okay and part of russell's project was to try to reduce mathematics to logic okay so russell's great goal was to demonstrate that we could define numbers in terms of sets and then define sets based on the axioms of okay. basic Formal logic, okay. Mm-hmm. So there's not a mathematics in the method, but the same method of early analytic philosophy was proposed, right? As it would take mathematics and fold it into basic first-order logic. But what they're trying to do too is like to take the utterances of science and fold them into basic first-order logic. So then you would have logic would then become this like system of everything.
1: When the United States and China clash, the world will never be the same, especially when forces beyond reality threaten to intervene.
0: What if the United States went to war with the People's Republic of China? How would these rivals fight for supremacy on land, sea, air, and across the stochastic streams of time? What wonder weapons would be unleashed? What horrors would emerge from the irradiated sludge of the South China Sea? What heroes
1: would rise and forever change the course of history? Tread into the deepest and darkest dimensions of the multiverse, gaze through a kaleidoscope of fractured realities, and
0: bear witness to the disturbing visions of World War III from today's greatest minds in science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Weird World War, China.
1: Available now from Bain Books at Bain.com. Okay, now. Did work, you by the t- way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, anytime you try to pin something down, yeah, know, it's going to be like trying to fight a Mandelbrot set, right? Where there's just another fractal that emerges. You, you said you did your dissertation on Leibniz. So, yes, Leibniz, like the calculus Leibniz, yeah. Yeah. basically invented it at the same time that yeah. Isaac Newton did. What was that about?
0: My dissertation or
1: yeah, yeah. Because yeah. you said it was something that very few people. Yeah. Touched.
0: So I gotta run the clock back 20 years here because I basically wrote the dissertation and put it in a drawer. But <laughs> so I wrote it on teleology in Leibniz, okay, the idea of purpose in nature. Okay. And a lot of early modern philosophy rejects the need for the very notion of there being purpose in nature, but they they, they see it post-Copernicus. Or really more post galileo right? That we don't need the idea of purpose or design or function to explain anything that's happening in nature. Okay. Whereas Leibniz disagreed with that. Okay. So he agreed that, yeah, at the level of mechanistic physics, there's no need for purpose there. But he also thought mechanistic physics could not possibly be a final explanation of things. Okay. So he thought, pa- Yeah, yeah. He's not man's not wrong. So he posited there must be a deeper level of reality okay, a non-mechanistic conscious level reality that operates for the sake of purpose, right? This is his famous monadology. all right? So, you can think of it as like really what Leibniz was, was what people call today a panpsychist, right? Like he thought the fundamental constituents of reality were conscious in some sense, to some level, ends, you know, good pursuing entities, right, that they were proposive. right? So, basically, my dissertation was on his attempts to sort of take mechanistic physics and reduce it to teleology
1: to advertise on through glass darkly email through glass darkly ads at gmail.com say more about panpsychism yeah what exactly is that so
0: panpsychism is a view in philosophy of mind that has kind of become a bit of a trend in in analytic philosophy right now, or I should say, I mean, not a trend in like everybody's into it, but it's a newer hot thing that it's okay to talk about, <laughs> right? Okay. And so the way, so I think the person really that's most worth reading on this is a guy named Philip Goff, okay? He has a book called Galileo's Error, which I think is rigorous, but accessible, right? So I'd recommend people have a look at that. And what Goff is doing is he's taking up what we call now the hard problem of consciousness, right? And the hard problem of consciousness is, to use the example that Thomas Nagel uses, and a less well-known example, I think it's funny. He says, so when I eat a piece of chocolate, I have a qualitative sense of the taste of chocolate, okay? Mm -hmm. But there's no part of my brain that if you licked it, it would taste like chocolate, okay? So he's, he's making the point. Yeah. He's making the point that there's a qualitative difference between the experience of the chocolate and anything physically going on in the organism. Okay. So then the hard problem of consciousness is, well, how the heck do we relate that qualitative experience to all the physical goings on in the organism? Okay. And the history of philosophy of mind in analog philosophy is basically the history of trying to deal with this problem. Like like how can we account for like Can qualitative states emerge from merely physical states, right? Are we going to have to be interactive dualists about this? Okay. And what panpsychism is, is the proposal that maybe the constituents of the universe actually have a kind of lower level qualitative awareness built in. Okay, so like someone like Goff would say maybe it's the case that Like the most fundamental particles, in addition to having like mass and spin and superposition, whatever, they also have qualitative awareness in a very truncated form that once it gets organized into hierarchies becomes more explicit, say human experience, right? But it's the attempt to solve the hard problem of consciousness by building consciousness into the most basic particles.
1: So if you had to stack reality in certain ways, I think the materialist paradigm would have been kind of physics at the bottom, then chemistry, then biology, et cetera. Where would consciousness fit in that hierarchy? Would consciousness come first? Yeah. So
0: for someone like Philip Goff, yeah. For a like Goff, like consciousness, and I'm using terms loosely here that like like Goff would rightly correct me on, but we'll go with this way. Right. <laughs> Consciousness is just as fundamental as charge. Okay, it's so the way we would say an electron is negatively charged. Okay, well, if you ask why is the electron negatively charged, that's a dumb question because we're we're out of answers there. That's just what it is, right? There's no property from which we derive charge. I maybe mean, correct me in the physics, but it's in, that there's no property that we derive charge from. right? It's the ground floor. Okay, someone like Goff is proposing that maybe consciousness is a ground floor property of physical reality right so in that case conscious would be as fundamental as as it can be right
1: okay all right now how does all this fit into the nature of reality yeah there's a great
0: paper by a guy named rupert sheldrake have you heard of sheldrake
1: oh yeah yeah morphic
0: resonance right Yes. Okay. And he published this thing in the Journal of Consciousness Studies. Okay. It's pretty cool that he got this to stick in a journal like that. This is like one of the, the, the most important philosophy of science, cog science, philosophy of mind. Yeah, cog he's science
1: one of those mind. guys who's like super talented. I think, yeah. I, I'm not sure if he was Oxford or Cambridge. Yeah. He's an Oxford guy. Yeah. Yeah. He's an Oxford yeah. guy, like yeah. I think biologist. Yeah. And extremely talented. And then he yeah. started going down this path and then was kind of, Punished for it a little bit. Yeah.
0: So what Sheldrake argues is in the title of the paper is Is the Sun Conscious? question mark. Okay. And he attempts to answer this affirmatively. Okay. That the sun is conscious. Okay. So oh, wow. he thinks that this begins to recommend something much more like the classical Greek view, where you know grand scale objects are conscious entities. Okay. Because So he he takes off from the panpsychist proposal. So you got consciousness built in at the most basic level, right? Which I think fits rather well with the Greeks, okay? And so what happens is you get, as you organize matter, you get more explicit consciousness out of that, okay? Like the particles you know in the desk that I'm tapping right now, they're quasi-conscious, but the desk isn't terribly organized functionally, so you don't get a lot of consciousness out of that, right? Okay. Right. But the particles in me are highly organized functionally, right? And thereby the implicit consciousness becomes more explicit. Okay. And what Sheldrake does is he looks at something like the sun. He's like, well, what do you have there? You have a highly organized, self maintaining, externally interactive system of particles. He's like, well, if you get consciousness arising in the brain, then then you must be getting it arising in the sun too, right? For the same reasons. Okay. And that's not mysterious because all the basic constituents of the universe are basically conscious anyway. And so it's just a question of what level of consciousness is achieved. Okay. So for Sheldrake, panpsychism has, not necessarily Goth, right? But for Sheldrake, panpsychism has the consequence of we may well be in a universe that is suffused with highly conscious, grand scaled entities throughout the whole thing. And when did he write this paper? It came out just a couple years ago. Yeah, I'll send you a link. Yeah, and I I cite it in the in the UFO book too. Yeah,
1: how was the philosophical community responded to this?
0: I haven't read any
1: reactions to it,
0: right? But keep in mind, if it came out in the Journal of Consciousness Studies, it was rigorously reviewed, right? And he builds it from very, very well-founded results in contemporary philosophy of mind, cognitive science, psychology, right? Various types of information theory and things like that. And so, you know, I mean, look, is he right? I mean, that's complicated. But has he made a proposal that is taken seriously by some corners of secular academia? He has. I mean, it was published. Yeah,
1: yeah I mean, it's almost like we're part of you know, planet Earth and, you know, we're evolving to help spread its seed across the universe, right? Again, I'm just... No, 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 yeah.
0: And you can see why it fits with my view of the UFO and the hyperobject. Yeah, Yeah, exactly.
1: Exactly. All right, so what other models are there out there for explaining the the nature of reality? We talked a little bit about panpsychism. What else is out there?
0: Well, I think, okay, so let's kind of go with some of the kind of the trendier things today right now you've heard of bernardo castro right yep so bernardo castro defends an idealist view okay and so the panpsychist is arguing that it's not that like consciousness brings the world into existence it's that the world is a conscious entity you see what i mean right so like the panpsychist isn't saying the particles are real because we think about them. The panpsychist is saying, in a way, the particles think. Okay. An idealist like Bernardo Castro is saying something more like, the world exists because we think about it. Okay. Mm -hmm. That it's a projection of consciousness. It's not so that the world is conscious. I'm going to qualify that, but the world is a projection of consciousness. Okay and so it's sort of like the classic you know, if the tree fell in the forest would anybody hear it if no one was th- would, would this would it still make a sound if no one's there Castrop, yeah there's no
1: there's no tree right
0: there's no tree yeah there's no tree in the first place yeah okay right, right. okay so why does Castrop think that well one Castrop is you know very good at the scientific literature and he just makes the case based on contemporary physics that the idea that you've got a world independent of consciousness, as it's described by physics, is it's done, right? <laughs> right. I mean, and I won't attempt to rehearse that literature, but it does seem like the best way to make sense of split screen and all that stuff is that there's something about our awareness of things that makes them be determinately okay. He also employs arguments from classic idealist philosophers like Immanuel Kant. Okay, and Kant will argue time and space. It seems like we can't have an experience without time and space, but we never actually experience time and space, right? So it's like, I experienced the green in the background, right? I experienced the black in your chair, I experienced the color of your beard, all that. And I can't imagine having an experience of those things that wasn't in space, but Kant would say, I can't ever experience the space, right? And so Kant's point is that like time and space then seem to be not things we experience in the world, but conditions for our experiencing the world. They're what make it possible for us to experience. They're not something that we do experience. So then the Kantian will then say, look, time and space are what we bring to the menu, or what we bring to the experience, not what we get from it. Okay. But then it would then seem like that whole world of time and space, it's not independent of our thinking. It is an expression of our consciousness. Does that does that make mm-hmm. sense? And you see those kinds of arguments in Casper, too, right? And so Kastrup will make the case that he thinks, look, we have no direct evidence of this, he, or how he argues, we have no direct evidence of a world that exists outside of our consciousness, okay? Any hypothesis we make about a world outside of our consciousness is in fact a hypothesis that's not experience. okay? Mm-hmm. And then he's going to say increasingly because of Kantian arguments, because of various results in, in particle physics and things like that, that's not even a very good hypothesis, okay? So, Castrop will will argue, and also then we do have things like the hard problem of consciousness, how do we make sense of it in our scientific system, all that. So, he thinks he has a nice, neat answer to all those questions, which is, yeah, the whole thing is a projection of of consciousness, right? The universe is a projection of consciousness. Not just that there are conscious entities in it, but it is an expression of consciousness, right? And then Castrop's own view of it is very sophisticated, right? He wants to make sense of why is there objective experience, right? he mm-hmm. eventually it rises in a view that's often called i don't know if he uses the term called cosmo psychism where he ends up saying no the universe just is a mind right and projecting like, kind of dreaming itself right and what we are, are like split personalities like schizoid personalities that, that have been torn out from it right and then you can see like that his view of like history and life is the attempt to like reintegrate with the cosmic mind he has a very young view of things yeah, yeah. So that too, though that kind of cosmopsychist idealist view, whereas like thirty years ago would have been laughed out of the room among analytic philosophers, is actually something you can find published in serious academic literature now.
1: What changed? What made that view more palatable yeah. today versus thirty I, years ago? I think the two things is,
0: you know, philosophers are always two generations behind the science. Okay, right. Hmm. So, and I think for a long time, we all thought to be good, you know, secular intellectuals who are into the science was to be like hardcore determinists, right? And to think of a world of hard, dry things bumping into each other independently of us, right? And I think finally, a lot of us got the message, like, that's not even the scientific picture. Like, that's been dead for a couple generations, right? And I think, secondly, the hard problem of consciousness is it's just hit home with a younger generation of philosophers. It's just not going away. Our attempts to reduce consciousness to something physical are just, they're not working. Right. And I think like the, the really epic making book there was David Chalmers, and I think it was in 96, you know, published a book called The Conscious Mind, where he said, look, guys, it's not working. <laughs> right. We are not on our way to solving the problem of hard consciousness. And he starts proposing things like panpsychism, right, as solutions to this. Right. I think work by, you know, people like Thomas Nagel too, who has for, you know, 30, 40 years been pressing this issue and has entertained views like panpsychism as solutions to it, right? So I think it's just those two problems is like one, the the irreducibility of consciousness in physics, right, Mm -hmm. has become unavoidable, right? And I think the, just the irreducibility of qualitative consciousness has become unavoidable to a lot of people. So where does
1: this field go next?
0: Yeah. Well, that's the question, right? So I think you have interesting people like Goff, you know, doing what would have been crazy, proposing panpsychism, but now he's, you know, creating quite a bit of followers, right? And I'm sure he's got dissertation students that are gonna go out there and you know pollute the universities with these great ideas, right? <laughs> hopefully, right? So I think that'll be a thing for a while, right? I think interestingly, I think it's hard to even predict academic where academic philosophy is gonna go because for instance, when I was in graduate school, Podcasts weren't a thing, right? They weren't a thing at all, right? And now I know of graduate students who have amazing philosophy podcasts, right? And you wondered, like, do those guys and gals ever get university jobs, right? Or will they- It's a good question. It's a good question. And if I had it back, if I could be a podcaster instead, would I do it, right? Because like you want academic freedom, right? You don't want to have to deal with a lot of the grunt teaching and stuff like that. So I wonder how many like really bright people who are getting PhDs in philosophy are going to just say, you know, the heck with it. I'm going to go ahead and create content and enter the fray that way. And think of like the kind of academic freedom that gives you, right? Where you don't have to please a tenure committee, right? That's going to be upset because you're writing about cosmo or the UFO or Bigfoot or whatever. Like, like how many issues are going to be taken seriously that weren't taken seriously for my generation, right? Because we. Played by the gatekeeping game of academia, right? So I, I think it's very hard to predict, right? Where it'll go or even what academic culture will be now, right? That you do have the wild west of the internet, you know, isn't all bad, right? Here we yeah, are.
1: But the empire is striking back though. That's mm-hmm. right. I mean, there's a lot right. of, you know, without saying too much, that stuff is, if you push hard enough, can be constrained. Yeah, definitely. It, 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 yeah, I mean, it's a calculated risk. I think today. I mean, are you aware of any philosophy graduate students who created podcasts and got tenure somewhere?
0: I know some who have just become kind of uh, digital nomads. Just you know, just didn't go into traditional academic teaching positions and seem to be making a living teaching their own classes online and doing the podcasting. Interesting. Yeah, very interesting. Now I'm far too like old and complacent and spoiled by tenure to even entertain such a thing. Like, if I were a younger man, who knows, right?
1: Yeah. Sometimes reality smacks you in the face, though. So yeah. sometimes. Right. Yeah. Once
0: again, I'm in my comfortable office here. You know.
1: <laughs> yeah. For folks who are looking to major in philosophy. What words of advice would you have for them?
0: Okay. Well, I have a second major.
1: Okay. And
0: I always strongly encourage anybody I'm advising to get a second major in something that has a fairly immediate make a living result. Okay. Like accounting or
1: something like that. Yeah.
0: Accounting, economics, you know, even like math. I mean, like, you know, people who major in mathematics do not have a hard time finding work because you have a certified. Smart person label, <laughs> you know, right? I do recommend that because the job market in academic philosophy has never been great. It's only getting worse. Okay. I always advise them if they do think of grad school, do not borrow money to study philosophy in grad school because you may well end up not with a job in that field, right? Because that's always a worry. Okay. Now, so there's those kind of like practical things. Okay. Beyond that, though, I advise my students who are majoring in philosophy not to be in a hurry. Okay. Not to be in a hurry. A lot of times young people want to just kind of check the box in the classics and then get into like the most contemporary recent stuff. Okay. I do not recommend that. Right. I think right now, right. At this point in my life, I spend more time rereading the classic stuff than I do like the contemporary literature. Okay. And the really, really smart, interesting philosophers that I know, that's what they do too. Right. So I would advise anyone majoring in philosophy as an undergraduate, to realize the fact that you have four years of leisure to study something like philosophy is makes you in terms of human history, like a one percenter in terms of privilege. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And you should take advantage of that to take your time, not be
1: in a hurry, and just simply read the classic books of the field. So today, who do you think is, I'm putting you on the spot here and yeah. you don't have to answer this. So- who do you think is the most talented living philosopher today? Oh my gosh, that's a tough one.
0: Okay, I think there's a guy
1: named. Why, why don't we say top three, and then you don't yeah, have to put yeah, them yeah. in any particular no, order? So
0: there's a okay, it's fucked. There's a guy named Graham Harmon who basically founded the field of object oriented ontology. Okay, and I think he is very important in that. Whether you like what he's done or not, he's thinking new thoughts. Right. He is philosophizing. He's not just doing commentary. He's not just publishing minutiae arguments in journals that will be read by two other people in his field and things like that. I mean, I, I think of Graham Harmon as, as a philosopher, right? So yeah, and whether you agree with him or not, I think he's definitely should be read and, and is accessible to a broad audience. And he intends to write that way too. Okay. So yeah, Harmon definitely comes to mind. Right. Can I go with a recently dead one? Sure, sure. Actually, no. I'll give, I'll give you a living one. It's a guy named Jonathan Lear at University of Chicago. Okay, and Jonathan Lear is a very interesting guy. Like, so he was one of the absolute deans of Aristotle scholarship for a long time. Okay, wrote maybe the best book on Aristotle. I think called "The Desire to Understand." Okay. Like mid two thirds career, I guess he kind of dropped out and became a psychoanalyst. Okay. Yeah. And now is writing incredibly interesting books that draw on both the classical tradition and the psychoanalytic tradition. Okay. And he wrote a book very recently, and probably like the last five, six years, called Radical Hope. Right. Which I think is one of the best pieces of social philosophy for our time. So, like, I definitely recommend Jonathan Lear. Okay. Another philosopher that influenced me quite a bit, uh, mm-hmm. who's still around, is a guy named Robert Brandom, from the University of Pittsburgh. Okay. Mm-hmm. And especially in philosophy of mind matters, I think he's very helpful. His writings are utterly opaque. <laughs> okay. But mm-hmm. he wrote a short book. That summarizes a lot of his later work called Magnanimity and Trust, which I highly recommend. And that will give you a great introduction to Hegel, right? And let's see, who else would I put on there? Oh, there's a philosopher named Charles Taylor, right? Who I think co wrote a book with a guy named Hubert Dreyfus, which came out a couple of years ago called Retrieving Realism. And I highly recommend, especially for people interested in the Umwelt kind of hypothesis. Yeah. You know?
1: And where did the, the whole concept of Umfeldt come from, again? Like, it, It's originally a concept in like early 20th century behavioral biology, but then
0: it gets pulled into Heidegger's phenomenology and then later into cognitive science through people like Andy Clark.
1: Okay. All right. Who's your favorite philosopher of all time? Oh, man. That's a tough one. A top three is fine. Yeah, tough. Well, I
0: mean, like, okay, so... So like when you when someone asks you you know like who's your favorite rock band you say the Beatles right you're sort of like I mean come on like anyone could say the Beatles right (laughs) you know what I mean like like, like, come on right but look I mean I am never bored by reading Plato right I've probably read Plato's Republic once a year for the last twenty years right and I'm still not bored by that book I still discover new things by reading that book okay so I don't think I've shaken Plato so definitely Plato. Definitely Aristotle, but I don't divide them as much as many people do. Okay. I kind of like wake up in the morning worrying about Nietzsche and like eat my lunch worrying about Nietzsche, then like go to bed at night worrying about Nietzsche. So I think I have to say Nietzsche's like on my list, right? Without a doubt. And the other thing too is you learn a lot about yourself when you look at the index to one of your own books. Okay. Because it's telling you who you really cite, right? And I I had this book in Philosophy of Mind come out er, earlier this this year, Thinking About Thinking. And when I did the index to it, I surprised myself that the person I referred to the most in that book was Wittgenstein. Yeah, so I I think I have to say, Wittgenstein still rattles around in my head quite a bit since my master's thesis, yeah.
1: So I'm obviously familiar with Aristotle, Plato, and Nietzsche, Mm -hmm. but Wittgenstein, not so much. What was Wittgenstein all about?
0: a Wittgenstein is, is a hard guy to pin down because he's one of these people who did a 180
1: mid-career okay
0: so if you ask like where's the origin point of the analytic philosophy one of the candidates would be Wittgenstein's first book that he wrote but i mean i think he he had written this thing the preliminary notes of it while he was like in a pow camp following world war one he was like 23 years old or something like that okay but anyway and so that was like one of the, the classics of logical analysis. Like in that book, Wittgenstein's arguing it. We just have to take ordinary language and we have to reduce it to what can be analyzed through the new logic. And we're going to find out all that can be said clearly. Maybe there's other realities, but all that can be said clearly will be revealed that way. Okay. Later in life, when the more mature Wittgenstein comes to realize that that's not true, right? And that he doesn't think there's a single form of language that we can reduce all language to that will then like be the vehicle for describing the world the right way. Okay. And Wittgenstein, the later Wittgenstein comes to have this very pluralistic view where he thinks that like what marks a language is getting the world right is if it works to get us around. Right. And he seems to think that if you think that's a good way to get around, you're committed to the ontology of it too. Okay. So Wittgenstein then becomes very open to not dismissing religion, not dismissing cultural claims, right? I mean, this is one of the things that starts to undo classic analytic philosophy, right? Because the aspiration was to reduce language to logic, right? Wittgenstein's saying, well, we don't have enough logics for that because language does a lot of things and it seems to get the world away in a lot of ways. And maybe there's not a single story to be told about it, right? So it's the later thought of Wittgenstein has been really
1: influential for me. All right. Any final words for the audience? Geez, that's tough.
0: I am really excited to see the way, especially with things that surround the UFO and the paranormal and the way that those conversations are becoming mainstream, that it's kind of dragging philosophy into it a little bit too, right? Like I think for the first time in a while, I'm seeing popular discussions of very serious philosophy happening. Okay. And I think it's a great opportunity, and I'm really excited to see that happening. Right. So I encourage your viewers, your listeners to now go pick up the books, right? Go read a book, right?
1: Yes. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of books, I think you have two recent releases. Can yeah. you just repeat the titles and where can you find them? Sure.
0: One is Unidentified Flying Hyper Objects, a philosophy UFO is the end of the world. Okay. And that you can find on Amazon. Right, probably your best place to get it. And the second one is called "Thinking About Thinking: Mind and Meaning in the Era of Technological Nihilism." Okay, and that too, you probably your best bet would be go to Amazon for that.
1: All right, those will be down in the links below. Actually, there's one more question I had yeah. I can't believe uh, I didn't ask you this. How is philosophy handling AI and the emergence of AI? Oh gosh. <laughs>
0: Okay, the second book I mentioned, thinking about thinking, is two of the five chapters are basically on that topic, right? So uh, you can find, you know, because you know philosophy is the least monolithic discipline that there is, right? It it's defined by disagreement, Right. right? So you can find any view that you want about AI, you can find being defended by some philosopher, right? Okay, so I'll give you my view, right? Is i make no claim as to whether or not we will make machines that will be as smart as we are okay i think that's an entirely empirical question or a question for a computer scientist, right what i would argue though is that whatever a machine does it's not doing what we do okay because what humans do is always informed by a kind of concern for things a kind of care for things it's always embedded in an emotional context. It's always embedded in a social context. It always goes back to basic, like tactile physical skills and things like that. Okay. So, my claim is that I find AI so interesting because I think it forces us to rethink what is actually distinctive and valuable about us. Okay. At least for philosophers. So, for philosophers, we tend to think of like, you know, oh, what's important with humans is that we're rational. Right, and we're distinct because we're rational. Like go back to the Greeks. Right, rational, rational, rational. That's the important thing. Well, if a machine can beat us on the rational thing, then this is, this opens dark questions, right? And then if we end up discovering them, but what makes our particular rationality different from the machines is that it's embedded emotionally, it's embedded culturally, it's embedded in attachment relationships to other human beings, and all of that. Then I think we're starting to see like what it is to be human and distinctively human is different than like we may have wished it were or thought it was, and moreover, it's no less valuable. Right? And so I find AI so interesting because I think it is a revelation of what really is important about human beings that we've been kind of systematically missing, at least in academic philosophy.
1: All right, my friend. It was an absolute pleasure and I learned more about philosophy, I think in the last hour or so than than I think I ever have. So I appreciate you and good luck in selling those books. Thank you, man. Appreciate it. If you enjoyed today's video, please hit like and subscribe and also hit the notification button so you can be notified whenever I post new content. Thank you. Now, if you're enjoying the channel, and you want to support it, there are several things you can do. In fact, there are five things you can do. The first thing you can do is just buy my books. I got plenty of books out in the market right now, and I would prefer that folks buy a book rather than giving me direct support because they get something out of it. They have a real tangible product. The second way you can support me is by becoming a member on YouTube or becoming a patron on Patreon and just go to either site and it'll explain everything. you can support the channel is by checking out my merch site which is here there's plenty of stuff that you can get to support the channel and i'd appreciate that you you have it and can wear it not only do you help support the channel but you also help promote the channel and i appreciate that the fourth way that you can support the channel and this is really easy is anytime you want to buy something on amazon literally just go to the description below and click on any link literally any link the channel gets a cut of that, and it costs you no extra money. You just go through the link, as I'm part of the Amazon Affiliates program. The fifth and final way you can support the channel is through donations. Now, I don't prefer these because it's more of an expression of gratitude, but you don't really get anything out of it as a subscriber to the channel. However, if you decide to do these options, there's two options. There's Buy Me A Coffee, which is a separate site, and there's also, you can go through YouTube with either Super Chat, Super Sticker, or Super Thanks. Again, I prefer Buy Me a Coffee because that organization takes less money than Amazon does. But either way, I appreciate any support you are willing to give the channel. So thank you very much and keep watching. I really appreciate it.